Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Women's Scholars and Professionals podcast. My name is Anne Boyd, and I'll be your host. We at Women's Scholars and Professionals are here to support women in their God-given callings into the university and beyond. So if you're a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. Let me invite you into a conversation with Kat Armis, theologian and author of Abuelita Faith, What Women on the Margins Teach Us About Wisdom, Persistence, and Strength. In her book, Kat builds a bridge between intellectualism and earthy wisdom as she considers the question, what if the greatest theologians the world has ever known are those whom the world wouldn't consider theologians at all? Through an exploration of history and scripture and her own Cuban-American upbringing, Kat draws fresh insight into the rich wisdom that can be found in women who are often overlooked in theological conversations. In our discussion, Kat shares about her own personal spiritual journey, including the complexities of navigating seminary as a Cuban-American woman, her encouragement to continue questioning the status quo and looking for wisdom in unexpected places is a breath of fresh air. Kat is fun and vivacious and full of stories, and I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. So let me tell you a little bit more about her. Kat Armas is a Cuban-American writer and podcaster from Miami, Florida. She holds a dual MDiv and MAT from Fuller Theological Seminary, where she was awarded the Frederick Beekner Award for Excellence in Writing, and is currently pursuing a THM at Vanderbilt Divinity School. Her book, Abuelita Faith, What Women on the Margins Teach Us About Wisdom, Persistence, and Strength, sits at the intersection of women, decolonialism, the Bible, and Cuban identity. She also explores these topics and more on her podcast, The Protagonistas, which centers the voices of Black, Indigenous, and other women of color in theological spaces. Kat is currently living in Nashville with her spouse and new baby while working on her second book, Sacred Belonging, a 40-day devotional on the liberating heart of Scripture. So let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here with us. I want to talk about your book, Abuelita Faith, but first I'd love to hear about your life as a theologian. Our listeners are mostly women who are connected with academic life in one way or another, and so I'm interested in centering our conversation there. And I'd like to start by asking you to talk a little bit about your path into theological education. Yeah, thank you so much for asking that. I feel like um, theological education is such a big part of my story and really just the creation of this book. Um, so I, you know, I grew up in a you know small you know immigrant Roman Catholic community, um, and so I didn't know much about uh, broader evangelicalism or even you know theological education in general. Right, all I knew about that was like the Catholic priests go to seminary. Right, um, that certainly wasn't a space um, that I would end up in at all in my life. And so right. uh, when I um, sort of made that transition to evangelicalism in my early twenties, and that was 
a new thing for me. And it was exciting. I was, you know, so in love with the Bible. It was so interesting to me. Uh, I had, you know, began to read it in, in a new light and, and, um, so many of the stories. And so I remember the first time I read it, I mean, this wasn't really a story, but the book of James. And I was like, this makes so much sense, you know? <laughs> so yeah, um, I was really just curious to learn more and I always wanted to write. And so I wanted to go to seminary so I can, mm-hmm. you know, write, so I can learn about God. So I can write about God. Right. Uh, so I decided to uh, start seminary and that journey, I never intended for that to be like my full-time thing. You know, it was sort of just a, a, a side, you know, something I wanted to do on the side. Uh, but where I was, um, it was very, you know, it was very much women, you know, didn't teach or didn't preach. And so after a while, when I arrived, I, I sort of felt like, well, what am I doing here? You know, am I, am I, why am I getting this degree mm-hmm. if I can't really use it in any way? Um, and that's when a lot of my wrestlings began. Also, um, as I was there, you know, I coming from a Cuban American household and a Cuban American community, you know, that really shaped how I understand the world, of course, being raised by a single mother and a single Mm -hmm. grandmother. And all of a sudden, you know, I find myself in a culture and in a community that was very different from mine. And I experienced um, a lot of culture shock, you know, also um, because I was raised in a big city in in a very multicultural city in a very again, Cuban context by women, you know, and so I find myself in a context where it was very male centered, um, very patriarchal, very hierarchical, right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so with that as well, um, that also sparked my wrestlings, you know, I, I would sit in class, and I would learn all these things about God, but I felt further away from God, you know, and Mm -hmm. then I had these sort of existential crises of like, well, I'm here in seminary to learn about God, why do I feel um, more distant from God? And that's because so many of my professors, of course, they were men, but also, you know, they were from rural Mississippi, or just places that were very far from my experience. And of course, there's nothing wrong um, from being from those places, it was just so different from my experience. And right. And so when you teach the Bible from that specific lens, and that's like the right and true and only and normalized lens of course, those of us who don't fit, you know, that um, space or don't fit in that um, story really mm-hmm. uh, feel, you know, really outside of that. And so that was a lot of, of what I experienced. I thought, well, does this have anything to do with me? You know, what about mm-hmm. the theology that formed me? And, and that's when I began to ask questions about um, and really look into the life of my grandmother and say, you know, wait a minute, I've been in seminary already for a few years. And for some reason, um, I, I feel like I learned more about God and about life and about the lived experiences of, of what it means to be a person of faith through the story of my grandmother, who was not educated, who you know definitely didn't go to seminary, who didn't ever preach or, or lead a small group or uh, so. Yeah. So that was really where this um so much of my passion came for an abuelita theology. It right. was looking back into my grandmother's life and saying, wait a minute, she was the greatest theologian I've ever known. Although I'm sitting, you know, in the midst of people who have written books and, you know, all, right, all right. those things. And so that's sort of, um, yeah, a little bit of my background and, and how theological education kind of fit into that. I'm curious to know if you could identify some of the particular gifts that you've found. I mean, you've talked about this a little bit already, but gifts um, that came from life in seminary and also some of the challenges? Um, well, you know, I, I, I talk about this in, in Awalita Faith, you know, I, I kind of look at, um, I look at wisdom, I, you know, I look at an Awalita theology through the, the lens of wisdom. And I sort of ask, you know, what is wisdom? Who is wise? And who gets to say who is wise, mm-hmm. right? And I think that that's something um, that as I was in seminary, you know, I began to really wrestle with this notion of wisdom, you know, I have multiple degrees. And I think that, you know, they're great. And I'm so thankful for them. And, 
you know, that really speaks to so much of the privileges that I hold, right, um, as someone who is educated. Uh, but I think what I um, what really stands out to me is that, you know, there are multiple ways and multiple uh you know, ways of knowing God, multiple forms of wisdom, you know, that people have known God throughout the world, you know, and I mean that just for someone like my grandmother who was not educated, you know, mm -hmm. but she knew God through her body. As I talk about in Abuelita Faith, she knew God through um, her sewing and her dancing and her, you know, cooking. And, and she knew God through all of these embodied ways. So I guess the gifts that I received in seminary was knowing God, you know, I love intellectual endeavors. And so knowing God in an intellectual, I love thinking about God and I love reading about God and I love having conversations about, well, what if this, and what if God is this, and what, you know, and, and, um, and yeah, what if, you know, this theory of, of knowing God, and those are some, some fun uh, and, and I think helpful uh, conversations to have, but I think also, uh, what I learned throughout my journey is that that's not the only way, you know, to think about God and right. study God. Right. Um, and I think, you know, I would even argue it's not the most important uh, way to think about God and know God. And again, and I, you know, love the Western education, um, but I also really am drawn to the embodied ways of knowing and being of which people, I mean, throughout the world have made meaning of their existence. And then, so that's something that I, I really wrestle with in Awalita faith. And I think that there's beautiful things on both ends. Yeah, um, that's one of the things I really appreciate about your work. You love the life of the mind, clearly, and you love the intellectual aspects of the world, but you're also really grounded in your body and in relationships and culture, and you're able to bring it all together in a way that is really unique. And it's just one of the things I really, really loved about your book. Yeah, I think that's what it means to be, you know, a holistic embodied person because our minds are part of our bodies, right? And I think that that sort of Western dichotomy of mind versus body or the intellect versus, you know, um, but I think that to be a whole person, I think you need all of it. You know, yeah. we want to exercise our minds, but we also want to ground our faith in the lived experiences of who we are, you know? And so I, I really try and, and do both, although it is a tension, you know, because yeah. we live, you know, in a westernized dichotomous colonial sort of yeah. you know world that it is there is a tension there and so I think that it's always you know a matter of leaning into that tension and saying no you know I, I want to exercise my mind but I'm also going to ground this in my body um mm -hmm. so I think it's you know it's important to do both and I don't do it perfectly but I, I really do try and wrestle with with both for sure well we've already begun to touch on your book Abuelita Faith, What Women on the Margins Teach Us About Wisdom, Persistence, and Strength. And you've written this book that weaves together a lot of stories, some very personal stories from your own family and stories from history and culture and stories from scripture. And one of the cornerstones of this book is your family's Catholic faith, particularly that of your grandmother. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about your journey of faith and the way you have integrated your history into your current spiritual practices. Yeah, um, that's such a great question, because that is 
a journey that I'm still on, right? And I'm trying to be very intentional about. I think when I sort of made that transition into evangelicalism, I really believe the lie that, you know, Catholics aren't saved, or, you know, that my grandmother, um, I had to evangelize her, you sure. know, and I really did, you know, which I look back and it was so silly, but, you know, I, I really worried for her salvation. And I would, you know, try and tell her about Jesus. And she would look at me like, what are you doing? I know Jesus, you know, like I'm very close to Jesus, you know, just look different than what I was told it was supposed to look like. And I think that, again, you know, going back to what I was saying before, that's a lot of where my wrestling stems from is, you know, I was being told that this is, this is, there's one way to know God and one way to practice your faith in one way. And here I have my grandmother who had a very different way of connecting with God and knowing God, you know, through the sacraments and through the saints. And uh, yeah. And so that was something that I, I, you know, within my journey, I began to reconcile and, and, you know, really repent of, you know, my arrogance and thinking that, you know, I knew the one way of knowing God really, but, um, but yeah, I think in, in recent years, it's been beautiful to kind of come full circle and, and see so many of the things and so many of the ways that she practiced her faith and how uh, for so many in my community brought or, you know, gave them hope. And, and it was really, I talk about, and I like the faith that it's a, you know, faith of survival. And I see so many of these practices, these embodied practices, really, um, you know, the sacraments and the saints, as I mentioned, ways that my community found hope and ways that my community survived in exile and survived through um, so much of what they went through. And so, you know, I look back and, and I write about this in Awalita Faith, you know, but, you know, altars were such a big part of, of, you know, what I understood faith to be growing up. And one of my grandmother's close friends who raised me, she was not welcome in the church because of the difficult life that she lived. You know, her mm -hmm. son, um, he was sick with HIV and it was just a very hard time, you know, for her. And she had come from Cuba. She was poor, but she found solace and faith and she found, um, yeah, that hope to continue moving forward through her altar at home, you know, and mm -hmm. that's where she prayed. And we would pray to our father and we would pray to Hail Mary and I would sit with her and, you know, it was such a beautiful moment and I knew God was there, but then, you know, years later, I'm told that that is not legitimate, you know, that right. that is um, not legitimate faith. And so, yeah, I think for me, a lot of it is, is looking back to these memories and, and not second guessing them. Cause I really, I mean, I was second guessing so much of yeah. my childhood and so much of, you know, my upbringing, but it's kind of looking back and sort of reclaiming those memories and saying, no, those were so important in my faith journey and so important in becoming, you know, who I am and how I understand God. And so now I even, you know, reclaim a lot of those things and, and even, adding those little practices in my own life, you know, um, one of my favorite details in the Bible is, um, when Jacob, you know, after he, he goes down for a nap and he has that dream, um, of the ladder and the angels, and then he wakes up and he says, wait a minute, God was here. And I didn't even know. And so he stops and he builds an altar, you know, he puts little stones and he builds an altar. And I absolutely love that detail in scripture because I feel like that is like such a perfect glimpse of what it means to be human. You know, we're walking through our lives and we're going through, yeah. you know, and then it, it isn't until the next day or hours later that we stop and we say, you know, wait a minute, I think God was there. And so I've even started, you know, building little altars just to mm -hmm. commemorate moments that I realize are sacred and holy. Um, and so, yeah, and that I feel like is, is me connecting back to my childhood and connecting back to those moments um, with my grandmother, with my community, where um, 
yeah, they met God in those, in those places where they, you know, even in the midst of, um, again, exile and so much trauma and so much, um, you know, just really survival, um, they were able to build these altars and, and, you know, recognize that the space that they're at, the, the place, you know, the ground they're sitting on as Moses, you know, takes off his shoes, the ground is holy, like these places and these moments and these things are holy. And I think that that is where so many of my community, um, how they were able to keep moving forward. And I, you know, and, and that's important and special to me. And so it's, yeah, it's just a reclaiming of things, of yeah. uh, moments like that. Um, and even, you know, some of the saints like San Lazaro and um, he's, you know, sort of the Cuban patron saint and so many, I mean, if you go, if you're driving down Miami, um, you see so many, you know, San Lazaro statues in front of people's homes and it's, you know, them, you know, proclaiming that, you know, that they are, um, yeah, that they're being watched over by God, that they are being, um, yeah, saved and healed. And, you know, like, so, so, so many of these practices and so many of these memories, um, I hold them dear now uh, that I, I'm, you know, looking back to a faith that, that really shaped me. Well, you just told us a story about Jacob and the ladder and your connection to that. But, um, your book is really full of stories from the Bible. And I love the way you draw out new insights as you explore the connections between biblical truth and cultural expectations. So I wonder, is there perhaps one more story that became new to you through the process of writing this book that you'd like to share with us? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So many. Um, I think one of them that became so personal to me was the story of Tabitha, um, primarily because so you know she's the the only woman in the new testament called disciple you know there are other women uh, in groups called disciples but she's the only one specifically called a disciple and as i was you know reading through her story i was like i, I started asking so many questions you know really like well, why is she a disciple? And, you know, and, and her story for those who, who need a refresher, um, she dies and then they call on Peter to come and resurrect her. And, you know, as I'm, as I'm doing research for this book and, and I come upon her story and I'm wondering like, you know, well, why is she, why did they call to resurrect her? Like, what is it about her life that was worthy right. of resurrection? Of course, all of our lives are worthy of resurrection, but what was it about, you know, Tabitha's life? And, what really connected me to her story was the fact that she sewed, right? And also, you know, that's such a huge part of my story and my grandmother's story. You know, she provided uh, for our family through sewing, through having her own clothes making business at home. And that's something I love so much about Tabitha's story because all we know, the only detail that we get from Tabitha's story is that she made clothes for the widows in her community, right? And that is all we get out of, you know, why she's called a disciple or why her life is worthy of resurrection. And it's simply because she was faithful. She used her hands. Again, she she used her body and her hands to serve, to create, to co-create. Mm -hmm. And it was with the, you know, the one group of people that God is continuously calling God's people, you know, to serve. And that is the widows, right? Um, so I, that was something that to me, I thought, wait a minute, you know, it was literally her using her body um, that made her faithful, that made her, um, you know, that warranted her resurrection. I mean, not many people are resurrected in the New Testament um, right. that, you know, gave her the title uh, disciple, right? And it was that she sowed. And it's something so simple. And granted, you know, there's so much more about her that we don't know, but that's what we know, right? And mm -hmm. so to me, that tells me that that is a very important detail, that, that that's what was recorded in scripture. Um, and it's so simple, but it's so profound. And there's so many women throughout history who 
who have similar stories, right? Through their passion, through their hands, through their body, through their skills. Um, it's not anything lofty or, you know, intellectual, or it's not anything, you know, it's something so simple, but they're, you, they're serving God and they're uh, faithful in that. Um, mm-hmm. And it's that, that, you know, sort of warrants um, what we see in, in Tabitha's story, which is incredible. And then another one, which really stood out to me was the story of Rizba. Um, you know, I had been in seminary for like four years and I had never heard her story. You know, it had never really been um, exegeted or, you know, any of that. Um, but I, what I love about Rizba's story is that it's really short, right? Like most stories of women in the Bible, you know, the Bible was written by men for men. And so the stories of women are sort of quick and in passing. Um, so Rizba's story is very short. Um but it's because of her bodily protest over the unjust murders of her sons. Mm. And this is the detail that really stood out to me that God sent rain. I mean, there had been a famine for three years. David inquires why, you know, that's why he goes and he ends up killing her sons, you know, to sort of avenge for, for the, um, the murder of the Gibeonites. But that wasn't what brought, you know, the rain. It was Rizba's protest. It was Rizba mm-hmm. standing at the, you know, site of her son's murders for six months, you know, we think. And, you know, really just putting a stake in the ground saying, this isn't right. And she put her body, again, her body on the line. And that's when David sort of took notice. He righted the wrongs that he had done and then God sent rain. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's like this woman that we barely hear about and she changes the entire course of history. I mean, because of her folks, you know, the Israelites could eat, right? Because of her, um, you know, like God sent rain, which is hugely important obviously you know so yeah so we have these stories of these women um they they seem so simple and they seem so sort of background stories oh yeah tabitha sewed or oh rispa she protested her but no you know they really changed the course of history and i think that that's something that i wanted to tease out so much in awalita faith um because it's not just in the bible it's in you know throughout history right you have you have someone like joanne robinson who the civil rights movement wouldn't be what the civil rights movement was if it wasn't for joanne robinson she you know it was her and a group of women that started the Montgomery bus boycott, which then sort of launched the civil rights movement. So yeah, I mean, you have so many women who are just doing the thing and being faithful and yeah. um, yeah, And I just felt really passionate about making sure their stories were being shared and told and we were reminded of them. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and you do such a beautiful job of drawing those connections between small acts and the impact they have and the, the right. wisdom that they have. And your book honors wisdom as separate from education or degrees. And so I guess I'm, I'm curious, mm-hmm. what have you learned about wisdom through writing this book and what qualities seem to embody wisdom to you now? Yeah. Well, earlier I, I kind of said, you know, I, I started with the questions, what is wisdom? Mm-hmm. Um, who is wise and who gets to say, right? Because I think that that last question is really important. Like who gets to say? And I think, you know, in our Western society, we look to specific people, you know, for wisdom. We look for specific things uh, to find wisdom. And I think that that's something as I was, again, wrestling in my own story as I began seminary and then writing this book and and really wrestling with the stories in, in the Bible, I started realizing, you know, wisdom is found, well, first of all, wisdom is contextual, you know, that wisdom takes on, it depends on the circumstance, but something that I've learned about wisdom, it's also very much tied to survival. You know, so mm. many of the women in scripture 
are literally just trying to survive. Like they're just trying to eat. They're trying to get married so that they don't end up, you know, destitute and alone. They're, um, you know, they're doing all whatever it is that they need to do to secure their future and the future of their families or the future of their communities. Right. I mean, you have someone like Tamar and even Ruth and Naomi. I mean, they're literally just trying to survive. And, and, you know, many of us love to spiritualize their stories and sort of, you know, make all these beautiful spiritual connections. That's fine. You know, I think we should, but at the same time, I think it's important to acknowledge that they're, they're just trying to live, you know, but what I've found that, you know, it is that survival. It is them literally just trying to live that God calls righteous and holy and sacred, you know, which is so interesting because it isn't anything um, over spiritual, right? It's, right? It literally is just them living their lives. And that is, they're either included in the genealogy or, or yeah, you know, after Tamar does what she does and her father-in-law, you know, calls her righteous for it, you know, mm-hmm. um, because of the wisdom that she exercised in ensuring her future, right? So what I found about wisdom is that, yeah, it's so much tied to survival. Um, And it it takes on so many different forms. And so much of it really has to do um, with the body. It has to do with, you know, um, using your hands, using your, you know, whatever it is that you have, whatever resources that you have at your disposal, which for many women, it is their bodies. um, Because for many women throughout history, they haven't had resources that weren't tied to men or weren't tied to, you know, um, their, you know, patriarchal lines. And so I, I find that that, um, yes, yeah, so interesting to me, you know, there's so many different ways of being and knowing in the world and of being and knowing God in the world. Um, and I love that the Bible really celebrates a lot of these yeah. different being annoying, you know, like, um, the Bible, just whether it's, I love the, 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 um, Moses's mother. I mean, she creates a basket out of the earth and that's how she saves Moses. I mean, that is a form of wisdom, right? Um, there are just so many different forms of wisdom. And I think that it's important to acknowledge all of the different kinds of ways of being annoying in the world. Um, not just, you know, the intellectual way, but all of them and to celebrate, um, how many forms of, of knowledge and, and wisdom there are. Yeah, and the the examples of wisdom, well, it's people often who are fighting against pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it makes me think. Um, you you talk in the first chapter about your own process of research, learning about the violence and pain connected with the history of the world, and the church and your community, and the courage you needed to face it to continue your study. So I'm wondering, can you say a little bit more about that? I see a lot of fruit from that process, even just in your book alone, but I'd love to hear more about what that's been like for you. Yeah. Um, research grief. Um, yeah, I didn't, I thought that I had like made that term up (laughs) cause I was just like, you know, but obviously once I started doing more research, I realized, no, this is a thing. And I kind of mm-hmm. mentioned it in my book that this is something that a lot of people um, experience. And I think personally for me, um, it stemmed from, yeah, I mean, I, I was in a women in church history course and I was learning about so many incredible women throughout history and, you know, what they have done um, and whether it's, you know, women like um, Perpetua and Felicity, you know, all these women um, that have done incredible things, all these saints really. Uh, but I realized, you know, there, I, what about the women, you know, in my culture, what about the women 
of whose shoulders I sort of stand on? What about the women who have shaped and formed me? You know, because mm-hmm. so many of the women we were learning were European women and, and that's great. They may have done so much for, for Christianity as we know it, evangelicalism really in, um, in the States and all that. But yeah, I was just really curious about Caribbean women. Or I was just really curious about Cuban women. Uh, and that's when I really began to do research. And I knew about colonization. I knew about, you know, of course, we know about what happened in the Americas when Columbus arrived. And to, we, know, we know about what happened to the indigenous people. But for the first time, it became really personal to me. And I think that that's sort of where this research grief stemmed from. Um, you know, it became like these colonial wounds, as I call them. Um, I felt them in my body, you know, for mm-hmm. the first time, I really felt them. Um in generation, you know, in the, in the generations past and my grandmother and my great grandmother, my great, great grandmother, you know, as I was doing my research, realizing that, that women bore the brunt of colonization. And so, you know, that was, um, yeah, that was really hard, but it was, as you mentioned, very fruitful because, you know, I was able to sit in that pain and I was able to sit in that sort of, you know, generational grief is mm-hmm. kind of what I call it. Um, and really wonder about God and question about God and ask difficult questions about my faith and about Christianity and about the Bible, you know, and ask these difficult questions. And I think from there, um, you know, we're able to really construct a, a faith that, um, yeah, that makes sense to us, constructive faith that feels personal to us. And I, I see this also, again, in the Bible, you know, there's so much wrestling with um, ancestral and uh, generational grief. You know, mm-hmm. I think of particularly as it intersects with my story, and this is even part of, of this notion of research grief, but the notion of exile, you know, that's a huge part of my family's yeah. story is exile. And when I read the Bible, I mean, there's so much of this, you know, grief rooted in exile, you know, I mean, you read um, in the Psalms and, and, you know, they, it says like, Jerusalem, you know, might let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I don't see you again, you know, I, I long for you. And I felt, you know, that was so much of that longing that I felt as a Cuban American whose family experienced exile. You know, I've never lived in Cuba, but I feel that longing. And so, yeah, yeah there's something about um, really digging deep into the history of your people and seeing how there's so many connections uh, to yeah, just so many uh, stories throughout history that people experience similar things, you know, whether it was, you know, migration or immigration or exile or, you know, um, and even those, you know, those who migrated here to the US, you know, centuries ago, it doesn't have to necessarily be, you know, um, Latin American history. But yeah, there's so, um, so many similar longings and so many similar, um, so much similar grief uh, in the Bible. And I think that that's something that, um, yeah, I found solace uh, within Israel's story mm-hmm. through, you know, really digging into my own and really sitting in that research grief. I was able to, to um, yeah, connect a lot of those dots. I'd love to talk for a minute about the concept of patriarchy. So often in your book, there is an overlap. You discover or uncover an overlap between racism and cultural oppression and the repression of women. And so I'm wondering what what kinds of connections have you noticed between power and oppression in these spheres? Yeah, um, I think in the book, I, I mentioned a quote by activist Julia Serrano, and she says, you know, women of color doesn't um, face racism and sexism separate, but the sexism she faces often racialized and the racism mm-hmm. she faces often sex- sexualized. Yeah. And I, I feel like I experienced that for the first time, you know, um, being 
born and raised in Miami where everyone's Cuban and everyone's like me and everyone, you know, kind of talks like me and acts like me. And, you know, obviously, you know, people are different, but, you know, there's just a general sort of um, way of being in, in my culture and also being raised by women, really only women. I mean, mm-hmm. my grandfather died when I was, before I was born and, you know, I, I was raised by a single mother. And so um, it was very different when I arrived in, in a very, you know, white evangelical setting, um, because it wasn't just that I arrived somewhere where it, it was very patriarchal in the sense that, you know, only men can teach and preach. Um, but I was also met, you know, and, and it was hard for me to tease apart really um, how much of the, there was cultural differences, you know, in, in so much of how I was interacting and with people. And so it wasn't, you know, just that, oh, I'm supposed to submit, but it was also just my way of, of interacting and just being in the world, my way of understanding the world, my way of, um, yeah. So it was, it was really hard to tease mm-hmm. apart, um, whether I was experiencing, you know, ethno racism or whether I was experiencing sexism, um, right. because it is so much of it is so interconnected. Right. Um, and, and I still experience it in my day to day, you know, um, obviously being a woman, you know, there's so many experiences that we have, especially in these spaces and theological education and in very male dominated spaces, but then also, you know, the way that I understand the world, the way that I was raised, you know, it comes with its own, you know, extra layer. Um, in Abuelita Faith, I talk about how um, there's a Cuban saying or a really a Latinx saying that says, um, I'm neither from here nor there. Nor the, mm-hmm. um, um, and I think that sort of encapsulates a lot of how it might feel for many people, particularly women. Um, you know, you, you don't feel like you're in one space. You don't feel like you belong in this space. Uh, but maybe you don't belong in another space, you know, like you want to be in theological education, but you sometimes you feel like you don't belong and, but you also don't want to be home and, you know, mm-hmm. you might not feel so, you know, there's this wrestling. And I think also um, for me as a Cuban American, I, I experience a lot of that tension as well. Um, but in Abuelita Faith, I want to, I, you know, I, I kind of wrestle with the idea of reclaiming that and sort of reclaiming, well, what if I'm both from here and from there? What if I, um, can feel comfortable in that tension of being both a woman and also a Cuban American woman. Um, and also, you know, being Cuban and being American and sitting in this third space, this tension space. Um, and so I feel like a lot of that, when I think of this notion of intersectionality, and when I think of, um, you know, the, the connections between power and race and, and, you know, racism and sexism. Um, I think that many of us live in this sort of, this sort of edge zone, um, when it comes to that, but, um, yeah, what does it mean to reclaim that edge zone? You know, what does it mean to, instead of the dominant culture, making us feel shame for living in this edge zone, not being from here or from there, you know, what if we were to push back against that notion and say, well, no, yeah, this third space, this edge zone, edge zone, you know, is where God is most present. It is where, um, the whole, you know, we can experience the Holy spirit, um, most intimately. Right. Um, actually posted a little thing on this, um, yesterday on social media, but I recently learned about ecotones and they're, um, you know, sort of the spaces in nature, um, where two bioregions meet. So where, where like bioregions collide. And so like the shore, for example, it's not fully ocean, but it's not fully land. And so Mm. it's sort of this mix of both. Right. Um, and it's in that ecotone, you know, conservationists actually, they, um, 
work on preserving ecotones the most because they're the most resilient against things like climate change. And ecotones also have, um, you know, the most diverse species because, you know, in order to live in these, in these middle zones, I mean, you have to be resilient against a lot of different things, you know, so there's incredible amounts of species, um, resilient species in this in these zones. And I was thinking about that, you know, as I learned about this, because I'm like, Oh, that is such a perfect description um, of what it means, you know, both spiritually and physically, um, what it means for me to be a woman to be a Cuban American woman to live in these sort of tension zones. where the dominant culture, you know, might be pushing against me on all ends. But, um, but yeah, what if in this third space, that's where um, a God is most present, B, you know, makes me the most resilient, or, you know, all of these beautiful things can happen in these, these third spaces, eco tones. Well, I'd love for us to turn now and talk a little bit about our listeners. Um, Most of our listeners are women who are working or studying in academia or professional spaces. And I wanted to um, bring up this concept of decolonized theology, which you talk about in your book. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about this idea um, and how listeners can begin to call for this in their own contexts. Yeah. Well, um, we were just talking about this, you know, this, this dichotomous way yeah. of being. And I think that um, that speaks a lot to what a decolonized or, or, you know, what looking toward a decolonized theology is. I want to preface by saying that, you know, I am a Western individual. So any, and it's also in my book, you know, so any talking about decolonizing that I'm going to do, you know, I'm on, I'm on a journey as well. You know, I'm not going to be a fully decolonized person uh, uh, because I am a Western individual, but But yeah, it's this, I think for me, and there's many ways that you can look into or, you know, um, talk about a decolonized theology. Um, I think for me, particularly as it pertains to an Awalita faith, I look at it in two ways. One, wisdom, which is what we've been talking about, um, continuing to push back against the notion of who gets to say who is wise, and also, yeah, looking to alternate forms of wisdom. And then also um, the second, you know, way um, is looking at life in this non-binary, non-dichotomous, and and by life, I just mean, yeah, education, wisdom, Mm -hmm. um, being a person in the world, right? Um, And really leaning into that tension as we've been talking about. And so it's not, um, yeah, not being satisfied with a simplistic black or white, um, either or mentality, um, but leaning into the both and. Uh, being allowing ourselves to be complicated people, um, yeah, and 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 allowing our theology to be complicated, uh, because again, if you read so many of the stories in scripture, um, I think that there is a lot of complicated gray, um, you know, I mean, people lie, cheat, steal, you know, do all sorts of things. And they are called blessed and righteous by God. And Mm -hmm. so I think that a decolonized um, faith really leans into that and asks difficult questions. You know, I think also um, a decolonized theology also questions the notion of power um, and empire and imperialism, right? We want to look into that and, and trouble those and question those, you know, in Awalita faith, I talk about 
um, you know, when I share the story of Ruth and Naomi, I say, but wait a minute, how about Orpa? You know, she's sort of dismissed in the story and she's kind of like, oh, well, she, you know, didn't go with her, her mother-in-law or whatever. Um, but if you read that through a decolonized lens, you see that, um, which is such a fascinating detail that is also always overlooked. She says that she's going back to her bet Emma, her, her mother's house. Mm. And that is such a, an interesting detail because typically she would be returning to her father's house. And so um, many people, when they read that, or many, you know, decolonized um, thinkers and scholars, when they read that, they say, wait a minute, she's doing, you know, something, she's essentially going against the grain, returning to her mother's house. Um, and that it is, is a, a decolonized reading of this text. And so instead of looking at her as dismissive or dismissive of, of Naomi, no, what if she is reclaiming, um, reclaiming something, reclaiming this space, choosing, um, what, you know, the best path for her, you know? So anyways, you know, it, it's, it's really, um, troubling a lot of these these notions of of traditional um yeah power also you know a decolonized theology looks at the canaanites you know we um so much of the bible is, is israelites are told to destroy kill you know um take over the canaanites but we want to say well wait a minute you know what is what if we read this story through canaanite eyes right let's always look at the story through those um the conquered, right? Those without power. Um, And of course, Israel, you know, in many ways are those people, Um, but also they're the ones that take over and conquer. And so, um, and that's part of, again, that both and that Mm -hmm. complicated, right? Um, And then also, you know, when it comes to a decolonized theology in regard to an Awalita theology, in regard to an Awalita faith, I also, you know, look at a lot of these stories and I say, you know, these are women, um, there are many, for example, uh, the daughters of Zalofa had their, um, you know, they fight for their land rights and they stand up to Moses and they stand up to the priest and they, you know, say, no, wait a minute, you know, we, we deserve our land because their father had passed and he had no sons. And so they were going to be skipped over from receiving uh, land. Um, and they literally stood in front of the entire community in front of Moses, which is a huge deal. God ends up saying, okay, they're right. Give them the land. But what ends up happening is Moses doesn't give it to them. They do it again to Joshua. And then what ends up happening is they, um, he, he ends up giving it, basically uh, giving it to their husbands, like, you know, connecting it to the patriarchal line, which is Mm -hmm. normal. But what, you know, my point is that they're standing up against, you know, patriarchal norms, right? They're standing up for themselves. They're assuming their agency, but at the end of the day, you know, it still falls back into, um, you know, patriarchal, again, norms, as I keep saying, right? So it's like this tension of, you know, they're bowing to patriarchy, because they have no choice. But they're also standing up and fighting against it, right? And Mm -hmm. so there's this like push and pull. And again, we see that so much in the stories of so many of women in in the Bible, you know, Esther, she stands up to power, but she also bows to, to the king to her husband, because she has to, right? And there is no, again, there's no um, either or in these situations, there's a lot of tension, a lot of complicated, you know, um, there's no, you know, pretty, yes, you know, they, they overcame, you know, whatever. No, there is a lot of complicated um, aspects to all of their stories. And so that's also something when I think of a decolonized theology, it's naming that, you know, it's naming that my grandmother, she, you know, she was incredible. She did so many things for her community, but yeah, I mean, she still upheld a lot of um, traditional 
views yeah. that were harmful, right? Um, so yeah, so it's it's naming uh, naming both of that, you know, not allowing ourselves to see in in a, the world in a binary, but um, yeah, naming both of it. Yeah, well, and I I appreciate the way um, all you know in your examples, all of these women really lean into the questions, and they you know they right. don't just take the status quo as oh it's it's unchangeable there is you know even if they can't change it in that moment there is a sense of mm. hold on a second is this okay let's let's lean into this a little bit let's ask some questions and i think that that's a lesson that we can all take into our lives day right well i wonder um you've talked about this a little bit already but i wonder if there are any suggestions that you could share for listeners about ways that they can watch for this kind of abuelita faith within their own families and communities yeah um well i you know abuelita faith i talk about how um you know to lean into an abuelita faith it it means looking at the places and people that we weren't trained to look, right? So mm-hmm. the central question I ask is what if the greatest theologians the world has ever known are those whom the world wouldn't consider theologians at all? Yeah. And so I think for me in my day to life, my day-to-day life that I try to be very intentional about and and just something that I encourage folks to do is, you know, where are the places and, and people that you have not been trained to look? You know, where are you overlooking or what are you overlooking? And this could be anything from a small child as a theologian to, you know, a, a marginalized, poor um, woman in your midst, or, you know, whether it's looking to nature as um, a teacher as well, you know, God speaks so much through whether it's burning bushes or, you know, Mm -hmm. look at the birds in the skies as Jesus, you know, there are so many um, places that we can learn from so many different kinds of people. And so, yeah, so what are the whether it's who are the the abuelita theologians in your life or um, where are the overlooked, um, what are the overlooked things in your life um, that God could be speaking from? You know, there's a, a, I I live in Nashville and there's an apartment building in front of my home. And, you know, one of our neighbors, she, she's an older black woman. She's lived here forever. And I've become friends with her and we don't really talk theology much of the time, but um, just learning so much about the world uh, through her eyes, through, you know, through her life. Um, you know, I consider her an abuelita theologian. Mm-hmm. I tell her all the time, you know, you are my abuelita theologian. Um, and it was just, you know, just meeting my neighbor and, you know, realizing that there are so many um, abuelita theologians in our midst. Um, and also, yeah, just, you know, there's an oak tree behind my house that I, I'm from Miami, of course. So I've never, mm-hmm. I've never had the seasons. I didn't grow up with the seasons and I lived in LA for a few years, also in those seasons. So I'm experiencing the seasons for the first time and learning so much about the process of life and death and rebirth mm-hmm. through this oak tree, watching it die and, you know, come back to life and watching the leaves fall and then watching, you know, it, watching the animals that make a home within this tree. And I've, um, I felt like I've learned so much, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's become a spiritual practice to go, you know, every morning walk outside and just notice the tree and know that God, um, yeah, can speak through that tree as well. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and it, this connects with a question I wanted to ask you too, um, which is, you know, where do you find hope in the world? You know, you, we were talking about research grief and I know that um, in so much of what you've been writing about and many of the things that you study, you are faced with a lot of pain, but, um, but how do you find hope? I would imagine that the oak tree is part of that and your neighbor is part of that. Yeah. 
what, what else is, is giving you hope in the world? Yeah. Well, I think, um, yeah, I think as you mentioned, just looking for, you know, where, where is life happening? Uh, mm-hmm. Where is God moving around me? And if you really stop to pay attention, you'll notice a lot more than you, you know, um, are accustomed to noticing. Uh, so obviously King Solomon says that there's nothing new under the sun, but I love Octavia Butler responds with, uh, but there are new sons. And I love that response (laughs) because um, yeah, what are the new sons? And I'm constantly looking for those new sons, you know um, what, what is rising? What is, what is on the horizon Mm -hmm. that is, um, you know, happening. And I, I, you know, we've, we've lived through, a difficult few years, uh, pandemic yeah. and just political, um, you know, uprisings and mm-hmm. just a lot of things that we've lived through in the past few years. Um, but I, I find hope uh, when I see so many of us, you know, continuing on uh, despite uh, how hard it's been, right? And I see mm-hmm. so many folks just continuing to create, and I think that creativity is hope. You know, um, whether it's doing this podcast or writing a book or sewing, you know, a blanket. I mean, all of that involves um, creativity and creativity is from God. And so I find hope in that, you know, um, just all the creative ways that uh, God is, is working in the world, you know, and and in Awalita Faith, I talk a lot about these, about, you know, women who, who use um, all the different sorts of creative ways to fight against oppression, to fight injustice. Um, Yeah. And I see so much of that now, even though many of us are exhausted and, um, so I find hope in that too, and seeing just how God uses our creativity. And also, um, I had a baby um, not that long ago. And so just, you know, just seeing how she's experiencing the world. Um, it's really, you know, I'm sure many new parents experience this too, but just it's you've experienced the world brand new. And so just seeing all the potential and, and um, not just her, but in just all that is around her, you know, yeah. I, she, loves my cat our cat you know it's every time she sees our cat her eyes light up it's like the first time she saw the cat you know and I love that you know I want to be like I want to feel that I want to be that way I want to be excited every time you know something I see something exciting even if I've seen it 400 times I think that that um yeah that gives me hope as well as we wrap up I'd love to ask what's next for you what new projects are you excited about we'd love to hear about them yeah, so uh, it's actually a, a decolonized sort of devotional. We wanted to, my publisher and I, we wanted to um, sort of reclaim the devotional space. And mm-hmm. so it's a 40-day devotional, and I look at places in the Bible, um, and well, through the lens of nature. So I have a, a, a section on nature, the body, uh, wisdom, and um, the feminine. And so, yeah, I just want to look at scripture through these unique lenses and um, just wrestle with being a human and also, you know, having a body and and the feminine aspects of, of God and yeah, all of those fun things. Wonderful. Well, and you also, you have a podcast yourself. Is that right? Yes. Yes, Tell I do. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's called The Protagonistas. Um, and it's, I just focused on women of color and church leadership and theology. And, uh, you know, that's sort of a sparked through a, a lot of this work, uh, really, in Awalita theology of just, um, you know, I want women to be the protagonists of their own stories. So many times, you know, men tell our stories, or so many times our stories go untold, or someone else is the hero of our stories. And so, 
I really wanted to hear from particularly women of color and just, um, yeah, give them a chance to, to be the protagonists of their stories. Wonderful. Well, we will um, add links to all those things in the show notes. Awesome. Thank you. And this has been so great to talk to you. Thank you so much. The thing that perhaps inspires me most about Kat is her readiness to look around her and learn from her surroundings and seek wisdom everywhere she goes. She has cultivated a beautiful posture toward the world, and I'm excited to learn about that from her model. And for those of you who, like me, wanted to know a little bit more about how life has been going for Kat with a new baby, you can listen all the way to the end of the credits where I've included a bonus from our interview in which Kat talks about her transition to life with a newborn. The Women Scholars and Professionals podcast is hosted by me, Anne Boyd, and is a production of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. You can find out more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you might consider joining our support team by donating even $10 per month. You can find out how to do this at our website. To ensure others will find and enjoy our podcasts as well, please consider rating and reviewing our podcast and sharing it with others. And as we close, listen in on this excerpt from our interview where Kat talks about life with a newborn. How, how old is your baby? She's 10 months. So she's almost a year. I know. I, f- I literally feel like she's still a newborn. I tell people, yeah, I have a newborn because <laughs> it feels, you know, it's so Whoa. fast. <laughs> oh, sure. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Can I ask, so how, how has it been for you to continue? I mean, have you, have you been able to take a break, a maternity break? And what was that like for you? I'm just, I'm really curious. Yeah, that was, um, so I, when I signed the deal for Aulita Faith, I had signed a two book deal and my second book was due when she was three months old. And yeah, so I asked for an an extension for sure. Um, but I was not prepared. you know, it's my first baby. So (laughs) you live and you learn, but I, um, was not prepared for how hard that would be, um, not sleeping and then trying to be creative and, you know, trying to sit right when you're just exhausted. And, <laughs> um, so that was really, really hard. Um, you know, I, I, like I said, you live and you learn, I will not do that again, but, um, but it was, you know, it was a beautiful experience to be able to, as I'm writing, um, you know, to be taking care of, of a brand new life. And I felt like so much of my experiences as a new mom, I was able to kind of incorporate, you know, into, um, my next book. So if you read that, then you'll get a lot of that. (laughs)